talking, we started Romans last week, and we're continuing our series in Romans. And I want to do um, a quick review before we jump into the passage this morning. Now, I thought of this analogy for the book of Romans because I have been on staff here at TBC for about 12 years. This month is my 12-year anniversary at this church. And now you don't need to clap. I was not looking for a clap. I was just, that just came out. So um, you use the word anniversary. Everyone's like, oh, good job, good job, you know. And uh, so 12 years, and what happened um, when, I first, when, I, when I first thought about teaching Romans is I thought, man, Romans is intimidating. I'm scared to teach Romans because it's a very just thick book, not so much lengthwise, but it's just a very thick with ideas. And whenever you read a commentary on Romans, it'll say, well, this little phrase might mean this, or it might mean this, or it might mean this, but it probably means this. And I'm like, how can you make sense of this book? How can you even make sense of a book like Romans? And I thought of an analogy just to give you a picture of what I'm thinking about. So um, this will sound dumb at first, but it'll make sense later. Uh, so you know when you go to the store and they have like those frozen juice concentrate things that are in the freezer and you've got to like go home and make the juice yourself? It's not the easiest, it's the hard stuff. It's like frozen, it's concentrated, and it's just a bunch of pulp. And you've got to put it in the, the pitcher and you've got to like put the um, water in there and unfreeze it and smash it up with a spoon and it takes like an hour. And, uh, and this is kind of like what Romans is like concentrate. It's like just thick, pulpy like, you got to add some stuff to it, like add some water to it to have it go down properly. And this is kind of like what Romans is. And so it's a very just thick with ideas kind of book. It's just the kind of book that it is. And we'll see some of that uh, play out today as we look at the passage. So quick review. Uh, who wrote Romans? Paul. Good. All right. Where was he at when he wrote Romans? What city? Corinth. Good. And he was trying to get to back to Jerusalem to take an offering back to the church in Jerusalem. Then he was trying to get um, eventually to Rome. Now, the church in Rome was interesting. The church in Rome had, there were some Jewish Christians and some Gentile Christians there in Rome. And the Jewish Christians got kicked out. But they were eventually allowed back into the city. And then after that, there arose a conflict between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians based on the observance of the Mosaic Law. So the Jewish Christians said, if you want to be a Christian, you have to obey the Mosaic law from the Old Testament and follow Jesus. They're adding the law to following Jesus. Gentiles were like, no, that's not true. And so there's conflict over that issue in the church in Rome. Paul writes Romans to uh, present the gospel to this church in hopes that he'll unify the church in Rome. That's his purpose, unifying Jews and Gentiles for the sake of the gospel. My hope for this series is a couple of things. Number one, we talked last week about a man named uh, Augustine and also a man named Martin Luther. You may have heard of them before. And we said that Augustine, in his earlier life, he liked to party. We said he liked the women. He liked whatever they drank back then. He drank it. And they liked, he liked to party. And um, he came to his, the end of his rope at the age of 32 and he finally came to surrender his life to Jesus. He had what we call a breakthrough. And he came to know Christ. And then Luther, many hundreds of years later, Luther was not like Augustine. He was the guy who liked to pray. He was, he was legalistic. He was all about rules. And he was a monk. And, and he was miserable. Like he was angry at God because 
of um, how he saw God. He just saw God as this righteous judge, wrathful judge, who lorded over everything else. He saw no love, and he had no love for God. He was angry at God. And he also had a breakthrough. And I'm trying to help you see that the book of Romans is not some just graduate-level theology for really mature Christians. Romans is geared towards anyone and everyone, someone who's like Augustine who likes to party, someone who's like Luther who likes to pray. And God used Romans to set both of these men free. Both men look back at Romans and say, Romans, the words of Paul in Romans, is what set them free from their sin and also their legalism. And we talked about this concept of breakthrough. And I mentioned last week that I would Something I'm praying for, whenever I do a book, I don't just want to do a book just to do a book. I want to do a book and say, what specifically do I want to see God do in our midst as we read through a book of the Bible? For Romans, it's really a couple things. Number one is that I'm praying for breakthroughs to happen all over this place. Whether it's for the first time in your life you are coming to know Jesus. First time in your life you were saying, yes, I want to be like Augustine. I want to put my ways behind me, and I want to embrace Jesus. Or maybe you're like Luther, and you're following all the rules, but you have no joy. You've got no true joy in your relationship with Christ. And so my hope and prayer for this series for you is that you would have a breakthrough of sorts spiritually. The gospel would truly penetrate your heart and your soul, and you would become, you begin to see Jesus as your Savior and someone that you can have this relationship with. And that's what I'm praying for. I also want to see this um, book bring about unity in this group. I mentioned last week, I don't really know how unified we are. And we, we do some things well, but I don't know, spiritually speaking, how unified we are as a group. And I want Romans to, um, to penetrate this group in the same way that Paul wanted it to penetrate the church in Rome, to bring about unity among the church in Rome. So um, that's what I'm praying for for this series. Uh, look at Romans chapter 1, looking at verse 1. Romans 1, verse 1. And this is going to be a mouthful. So warn you, verses 1 to verse 7. Romans 1 is one sentence. Paul does not like periods. He hates periods. You see that in all of his writing. So look with me in, in Romans. Look at the whole section. This is verses 1 to 7 starting off. Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Comma, thank you, Paul, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that deserves a clap right there, like reading that verse all the way through. Now you can clap for that. But you have had to diagram sentences before, right, in class? You guys do that like in grade school, whenever that is? Diagram that. I want to see you diagram that passage, right? And when you look at a passage like that, 
you ask the question, okay, where do I even begin? It's a bunch of just phrases. What is he really getting at? I want to break this down for you as quick as I can. First thing he says, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ. Do you realize how amazing that statement is? Paul, a servant of Christ. Remember who Paul was before he became Paul? He was the guy who was responsible for persecuting the church and possibly killing Christians. And it's amazing to think that that's who he was. So think of the equivalent of that today. We just think of Paul as being the apostle, the church planner, this amazing man of God. But before that, who was he? He was someone who persecuted the church and killed some Christians. And now he's being called a servant of Christ. Who is someone, whether someone in the public realm or someone even at your school, that right now you would look at and go, you know, if you took their name and said their name, you would never say servant. You can't imagine saying servant of Christ. It, it just seems ludicrous. I asked you guys that question a couple years ago. Yeah, ludicrous. Yeah, there you go. Um, it, a couple years ago, I asked you that question. Who is someone that you'd be so surprised if they came to know? And you guys said Lady Gaga. That was the one that you were like, yeah, I'd be really surprised if they came to know Jesus. Well, you know, this Paul was not an artist, of course, back then, but he was, it was just, if not more surprising for him to be a Christian now as it would be for the, the most extreme person you can think of today. This is who Paul was. And uh, it also says he's set apart for the gospel. I wanted to find for you this morning what the gospel is because I think we throw this word around gospel. I throw it around all the time, and we don't actually define it. So here's the definition of the gospel. It's a Greek word, and it's, it's pronounced, uh, I can't pronounce that. Euangelion is how they pronounce it. Euangelion, okay? It means good news, very simply. Now, um, what word do you see in the middle of that word? You see an angel? Now listen, in the first century, if an emperor was on a faraway battlefield and an emperor won a battle and he had to get the news back to his people that he won the battle, they would send what they would call, Greek word again, angeloi. All right, go to my next slide. Angeloi, heralds of good news. So this person, they're called an angeloi, whatever that means exactly in their terminology, they would be the one that would come back and say, hey, the king won the battle and pronounce it to everyone in that city. And this is where we get the word angel from, because angels are ones who bring good news. They're the heralds of good news whenever they appear um, before Jesus came uh, to earth. This was their role. And so in that culture, first century, emperor wins a war. This is how they would announce it to people. This brings us to our definition. So gospel defined is this. The gospel is good news of Jesus' perfect rule, but also an invitation to come under that perfect rule to make him our Lord. This is how we define gospel. Now, some of us haven't submitted to him as Lord yet. So we hear about Christ and we hear about these ideas, and um, we're always going to, from this stage, from the stage of the main auditorium, this causes me the greatest angst being a pastor here where we live in Texas, because um, there are so many of us that can just walk into church and fall into church, and we don't truly surrender our life to him. We just, we attend church. And in Matthew 25, 19, Jesus says, go and make what? Disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And he says, go and make disciples. 
He doesn't say, go and make church attenders. He didn't say, go and make good moral people. He says, go and make disciples. Disciple is a follower. Disciple means pupil or student. It is a follower, someone who doesn't just believe some facts about Jesus, but they truly follow after him as they live their life. So during this series, I'm praying, I mentioned this before this morning, I'm praying that there will be people in this room that actually want to become his disciples as we walk through the book of Romans, that you will see the cost of discipleship and you'll say, yes, that's a cost that I want to partake in. It's worth it to me. And if you look at the next phrase in this little passage here uh, in Romans 1, verses uh, 1 to 7, it says, promise beforehand. So Jesus did not just show up out of nowhere. There are prophets that told about Jesus' coming, the Old Testament, and it also mentions the resurrection. How do we know Christ was the Son of God? Well, the resurrection shows us that. This verse is saying, this passage is saying that we know Christ was the Son of God because of the resurrection. If you're someone who is a skeptic, you're not a believer yet, and you've got a tough time believing in miracles or things like a resurrection, like someone coming back from the dead, which is understandable why you might have an issue with that. But if you're a skeptic, I would tell you, I would challenge you in this area. If God really did come in the flesh, then wouldn't you expect him to do some God-like things? Wouldn't you expect him to do some crazy things? It's so funny how in our skeptical minds how we can operate. We can think sometimes, yeah, there's miracles. That just seems like hocus pocus. It seems crazy. I can't, I can't believe that and maintain respectability among my friends who are very scientifically minded. But if God did come in the flesh, then wouldn't you expect him to do some God-like things? Wouldn't you expect some miracles? Wouldn't you expect some, something like a resurrection? So we have to think about this as we look at um, just the truthfulness of Christianity. In verse 5, something really interesting. He says, through Jesus, we receive grace that brings about obedience of faith. Now, we're going to focus a little bit of time on this obedience of faith. So I want you to catch the connection between grace and this obedience of faith. Because many of us think that we're saved by grace, but we grow by works. Many of us think that we're saved by grace. It's free, freely offered to us in Jesus Christ. It's worked for us on the cross. But we think that we grow by just sheer effort. Especially this time of year. This is the New Year's resolution time of year, which... How many of you guys have actually stuck with it for two weeks now, whatever it was for you? Um, okay, don't be too eager to raise your hand. But there are New Year's resolutions centered around everything, fitness, dieting, and especially when it comes to spiritual disciplines. Everyone, Christians are like, yeah, I got to get serious about the Bible, and I got to get, I, it's time for me to ramp it up. I started slacking last year, and that, now it's time to really get back in gear. And this is how we tend to live. And most of us think that we are saved by grace, but we grow by works and sheer effort. This verse shows us you're saved by grace, but you also grow by grace. You don't grow by just sheer effort in your own strength, because what will happen is you begin to grow and learn some things that will lead to pride. Now it leads to pride, because you're not grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. 
So we are saved by grace, but even our ability to obey is fueled by grace. I want you to catch that truth this morning. One thing that I want for this series more than anything else is that I know I said there's a lot of just high and lofty theological truths throughout Romans, and I want the truths of Romans to just drop like a bombshell into your life and sink down into your soul. And so my goal this series is to take these these concepts, these things that are very thick and difficult to understand and help you see how they connect with your life in a very real way. And so we're going to be looking at that as we walk through this series um, together. Another uh, thing I want to point out to you is the obedience of faith he's talking about here. Obedience flows out of saving faith. True faith brings about obedience. We see it in this passage. It flows out of faith. Uh, Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. What he means by that is, go to my next slide there. Um, what he means by that statement, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. He means that saving faith is always a, followed by works or fruit. You're not saved by works, but true faith that saves. If you have true faith, it's going to produce a life of obedience and repentance. That, that's scriptural. So we are not saved by works, but saving faith produces works. He also says in verse 5, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. These are the things that you'll miss if you just gloss over the text of Scripture. The obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Watch this. Did you catch what he just said? Our obedience, go to my next slide, our obedience directly impacts how people see the name of Jesus. Whether or not you and I live a life of obedience affects how the nations view Jesus. It affects how they see him. I think most of us, we, we just think that our obedience affects only me and God. Yeah, I, I messed up, and so that, that's between me and God, and that's just that's our thing. We'll work it out. But your obedience impacts other people. Your disobedience impacts other people. And it affects other people, not just you and God. But it affects those around you. And even affects, it's, this says, the nations. Because think about when you and I choose to disobey God, there are repercussions. Ministry opportunities that we miss out on because of our disobedience towards him. So I want you guys to do questions uh, one to three there at your tables. Discuss questions one to three. Ready to read verse 8 yet? All right, verse 8. Look down at verse 8 in your Bibles. We're going to continue there in verse 8. There's a fly up here that's bugging me. I didn't mean that to be a pun, but it was. It's like flying around my head. It's a little gnat or something. So if I suddenly freak out, you'll know what that's about. It's not the Holy Spirit. Um, it's a spirit of anger. Uh, look at verse 8, Romans 1, verse 8. Some people thought that Paul was afraid to go to Rome because Rome was an intimidating city. Um, you can probably think of cities in our culture today that would be, uh, man, going to that city would be tough to go and share the gospel in that city or that town. That, was, that would have been Rome back then. So the Romans think that Paul's scared. 
You haven't come here yet, Paul, because you're scared of the Romans. You're scared of Rome and what everything Rome is about. And Paul writes, look at verses, uh, verse 8 through 15. We'll go over this very quickly. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So Paul wanted to go to them, but God was preventing him. Verse 11, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I, that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So Paul wants to go to them. He desires to go there, but God has prevented it up to this point, and um, he, he eventually does go there through other means. I want you to focus on just one little phrase. He says, I want to be mutually encouraged. So I'm not coming there just to preach at you. I'm not coming there just to me to show you a thing or two. Because I'm Paul. I'm the apostle. I'm the one that saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. I'm pretty special. I'm important. He says, I want to be mutually encouraged. Me and you to be encouraged as a result of my, me coming to you. And I want you to focus on that because I think so often in our context, we see this relationship between leader and student, that it's my job to just pour out to you and you just take it all in or your leaders at your tables. It's their job as the shepherds um, to really just make disciples and just pour everything they can. And that's partly true. We are supposed to feed the flock, but there's also a mutual encouragement that happens from leaders and students and back and forth, and that's the way it should be. And I find myself mutually encouraged by working with you. I know our leaders find themselves mutually encouraged by working with you. My hope is that you find mutual encouragement among each other in the body of Christ. I had a student many, many years ago, a different church, um, really, really smart, intelligent guy, didn't have the greatest social skills and people skills, but he's really, really smart. And he was very self-sufficient, very independent. So he'd come, he'd sit in the Sunday morning worship service and just sit and take it all in. He and I would have some good discussions about that. But then um, during the week, he would never come and be part of smaller groups on Wednesdays. And I said, Justin, like, we'd love to have you come on Wednesday. I think you have a lot, you have a lot to offer. Like, please come and, and be a part of it. And he goes, no, no, I'm good. He goes, I get everything I need on Sunday. And I thought about that, and I said, well, Justin, you got to understand something, though. Like, you, it's not just that you need the church, but the church needs you. Like, like, what if someone else comes on Wednesday night that needs to be encouraged by you? Like, someone else that has some questions and some doubts, things maybe you've wrestled before in your life, and maybe you can encourage them in their faith. And in the church, there needs to be this mutual encouragement happening in community, you can't see yourself as just a consumer. Like, I come into church, I get what I need, and I walk out. That's not what the church is supposed to be. Even Paul understood this. And I know that we're all tempted towards this. Like, what's one of the things that you say when you leave church? I got something out of that. Or, I'm not going back there anymore because I'm not getting anything out of that. And there's a certain truth to that where the leaders should be pouring out God's Word and teaching God's Word in a, in a biblical way. 
but there should also be some mutual encouragement happening in the body of Christ among leaders and among students. It should not be just come and consume and take, take, take. That's not the point of what it means to be in the body of Christ. I want you to look now down at uh, verse 14. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. Who are the barbarians? What do you picture when you think of a barbarian? Donald Trump. Someone said Donald Trump over here. Barbarian. Yeah, he could be a... He's an interesting barbarian. He's kind of barbaric. But you picture... You picture, like, someone who's just, what else did you guys say? Thor. <laughs> but you just picture someone who is um, not very well educated. Maybe they're like, we always equate, you know, dudes that work out a lot with, you know, yeah. But Tim, does someone say Tim? Yeah, well, there we go. Um, I'll tell Tim you said, you said that. Um, but we think of someone who's just uneducated. Well, the Greeks had a word for people that could not be as wise as, the, as they were, and it was, they called them barbarians. Whatever word they used was bar- barbarians. Someone who couldn't speak well, someone who couldn't read well, someone who wasn't well-versed in their philosophies. And Paul says, I come to the educated and the uneducated, Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And uh, this is Paul's first reference to the division in the church we talked about last week. And Paul says he's got this obligation to both groups, Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, barbarians. And obligated means, also means indebted. So Paul's never been to Rome. So in what way is he indebted to these people? I want to give you just a quick analogy, a quick picture of this. Um, but I've got to borrow a little bit of money from someone in the room. Um, so does anybody here have like a 20 on them? They can just donate to the stage real fast. Just a 20. 50 will do. 100 will do. But just something. Just somebody give me a, a bill, a, a bigger bill. What do we have here? Oh, a 20. All right. Nice. Nice and crispy. Um, so, so let's just pretend for the sake of argument this, is, this belongs to me now. Let's just pretend that it belongs to me. This is now my $20 bill. And let's just say that, um, that I'm going to lend it to someone. I'm going to lend it to Adrian. So, Adrian, lend that to you because you need $20, right? And so now, so now I've lent him money, and so now he's indebted to me because I lent him money, correct? That's one way to be in debt to someone else. Now, give it back, all right? Now, that's not what Paul means, though, when he says, when he says I'm in debt or I'm obligated to uh, those in Rome. Here's how Paul means it. Another way for, for, for someone to be indebted to someone else is if I were to give Adrian this 20 and I were to say, okay, um, can you pass that along to um, my wife, Courtney, right? So, so now, until he passes it along to her, like he is indebted to her, correct? Not in the same way, but he is still indebted to her because I said, I want you to pass this along to my wife, Courtney, and I want her to keep it forever, right? And uh, so um, this is the way in which Paul is meaning the word obligated. All right, you guys can pass it back to uh, whoever the rightful owner is there. 
There we go. So this is what Paul means when he says he's obligated. He is saying, this is, it's a really profound statement. He is saying, God has given me the gospel, and I am obligated, I am indebted to the Romans to give it to them. And this is what he means by this phrase, obligated. And I think we are under the same obligation as believers. God has given us the gospel, and he has told us to give it to everyone that we know, everyone that we come in contact with. And if, we, if you and I owe someone something and we don't give it to them, what do we call that? We call that cheating someone or shortchanging them. And so for us to not give someone else the gospel or to live on mission is really to cheat someone out of the debt that we owe them, the obligation that we owe them. This is how Paul's using the word. Now, we're going to um, transition and go to verse 16. This is the linchpin of the whole passage this morning. Verse 16, read this with me this morning. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, there is a ton we can get into in this little two-verse section. I mentioned to you before that, that Romans is like just thick. I mean, you have to unpack everything you see. And I don't have time for everything this morning, but I want to show you just a couple things here. The word for ashamed can also be the word for offended in the original Greek language. And how is the gospel, how is it that the gospel is offensive? There's several ways in which Paul means this when he says, I am not ashamed. He's, he's also saying, I am not offended by the gospel. And here's what he means by this. The gospel can be offensive because by telling us that salvation is free and not deserved. Most of us might be surprised to hear this idea that the gospel can be offensive because it sounds like the most amazing thing ever, that, you know, you can um, have your sins forgiven if you put your faith and trust and believe in Jesus Christ and his finished work for you on the cross, how in the world is that message offensive? Well, here's how it's offensive. It's offensive because um, it's telling us that we don't deserve it. It's telling us that we don't deserve one little ounce of his free grace. And that can really offend someone. I've actually heard people say this, things like, I just can't buy into the notion that, that we're that sinful. I mean, there are some people that do some bad things, but, I mean, I'm a pretty good person. And it's offensive to them to say, no, no, you're really not. None of us really are. That because it's free, it's actually offensive to us because it shows we don't deserve it. We deserve none of it. The second thing he means by this, how is the gospel offensive? By telling us that trying to be good and spiritual isn't enough. When you and I try to be good and spiritual on our own, and we fall short. Apart from Christ, there are no truly good people. This can also be offensive to someone who first hears the gospel. And the third way in which it can be offensive is by telling us that salvation brings about suffering. Many people, I discussed this in our sermon in the main service two weeks ago, the cost of discipleship. Many of us come to Christ thinking that Every aspect of our earthly life will improve from there. And very often it's the opposite. We actually struggle more when we become a Christian 
bad things happen to us when we trust Christ. We're being tested. And by, so one of the ways in which it's offensive is by telling us that salvation brings about suffering. I use this quote, main service, two weeks ago. Dallas Willard said this, Many Christians think Jesus suffered so we don't have to. But true discipleship is a call to come suffer with Jesus. It's an invitation to come suffer with him, alongside him. And I don't know when, when did Christianity become this tame and safe life? When did we come to see Christianity as, um, you know, selling out and moving to the suburbs and becoming this tame and safe, comfortable life? Because if you look at all the stories in the, in the New Testament and what happened to the disciples when they followed after Christ, it didn't end that way for them. It didn't end that way for them, comfortable life. And I would, I would say that especially where we live today, when many of you grow up in the, the comfortable idea of Christianity, that it's, it, you see it as so comfortable and so safe and so tame, that's why you want nothing with it. You want nothing to do with it because it just seems like a, a sellout life, just a tame, comfortable, safe life. And you want adventure. Like you want, and so what happens is you see sin as adventurous. You, you, you see sin as, yes, that's fun. That's adventure. And, and Christianity was never meant to be a tame life. It was never meant to be a comfortable life. That wasn't the point of putting our faith in following after Christ. But if there's one concept I want you to get from this little passage in verse 17, it's this concept of faith, belief. And this is where, this is how someone comes to know Jesus and follows after Jesus. We, um, he says this phrase, Paul says this phrase, from faith for faith. What that means is that your whole life is bookended by faith. So your walk with Christ starts with faith, it is lived out in faith, and it ends with faith. I mentioned before, it's not about starting with faith, and then from that point forward, it's like good works, good works, good works, good works. Tim Keller says, we do not become righteous by faith and then maintain it through our own goodness. So many of us, we come to know Christ in faith, understanding it's a free gift, and then you begin to see your life in approval from God as based on your efforts and your own good works. And this is how we live our lives. This morning, um, I mentioned to you that Augustine, he liked to party, and Luther liked to pray. And I know that there's those two kinds of people in this room and everyone in between. One's moral, one's immoral. One's a rule breaker, one's breaking all the rules. And there are certain ways in which both kinds of people are tempted to reject the gospel and find the gospel offensive. And here's how we do it. We reject the gospel. The rebellious person rejects the gospel because they see Christianity as limiting their freedom, and so they reject Jesus. They see him as a killjoy, and they reject Jesus because of it. The religious person, the person who is following all the rules, they see following the rules as earning favor with God, and then they reject Jesus. Now, follow me on this. This might be confusing. How does a religious person reject Jesus? Here's how. Because they see themselves as good enough. Why do they need Jesus? Now, they never do it 
in an obvious way. They don't say like, yeah, yeah, I don't believe. They don't, they don't say it in an obvious way. But in their hearts, they feel like they're good enough. And so they don't, they, they, they sort of spiritually reject him. Maybe not verbally or outwardly. But they feel like in their heart that I don't really need him because I'm, I'm doing pretty good. And that's how they live out their faith. And so the dangerous thing is that for the religious person, they don't know they've rejected him. The rebellious person is fully aware. They know it. They're like, yeah, yeah, I don't want anything to do with that. But the religious person, they don't, aren't aware of it. And I wanted to show you how this plays out in life because this affects me personally. You may not know this because I keep most of this inside, but I've always been a pretty anxious person. Since I was a kid, I, I worried a lot about lots of stuff, anything and everything. And I can be an anxious, fear-driven person. And so often anxiety centers around just life and work and performance. How do I feel like I'm doing in those areas of my life? And so, so often I can get caught up in that and wonder, and I, my wife knows it. I can share with her, like, I'm really concerned about this, concerned about that how this person views me, how that person views me. And I can be just this anxious, um, worrisome person. And I have to continually go back to the gospel because the only thing that will set me free from that is this idea that I am approved of in Jesus Christ. Not because of performance. Not because of things I've done. And if I were, if you were honest, I would bet there are many of you, you can think of the things you struggle with. Anything you and I struggle with on a personal level is met, is solved when you and I reflect and we believe in the gospel. You will not find approval anywhere else. Nothing else will take care of your anxiety. Nothing else will take care of your fears. Nothing else will take care of of the things that you're going through in those areas of your life. I want to close with this one last statement. We'll do more discussion. One last quote. At the root of each and every sin, each and every problem is unbelief and a rejection of the gospel. People who are immoral and people who are moral both reject the gospel when they try to be their own savior. I want to pray for you. God, we thank you that you're a God who continually, no matter how, how long we've been a Christian, we, we, we can continually go back to your grace and your mercy in the gospel and be fed by it and be informed by it and have our faith fueled by it, Lord. We know that, that none of us are exempt from these kinds of struggles. We pray as we look at Romans that, that these kinds of truths would just sink deeply into our hearts and souls and that you'd be made more clear in our lives as we reflect on what it means to follow after you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Uh, go ahead and discuss your last uh, four questions at your tables.